It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Tuesday, July 28th, 2009. We are one day closer to the visible return of Jesus Christ. When's he showing up? I have no idea. Uh, Jesus doesn't really uh, let me in on stuff like that. But he has let everybody know that he is going to return. As surely as he is raised from the dead, he will return. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. That means that we believe that the Word of God is true and that it is the source of all sure and certain knowledge and doctrine regarding the one true God and the proper worship and doctrines regarding this one true God. It is truly His Word. It is truth. And through it, we can have certainty that we know what is true, what is false, what is evil, what is good. And also to know that there is good news written in it regarding all of us. That Christ died for our sins and is offering us salvation free and clear, uh, at least if you're a sinner. Now, if you're already righteous, then you don't need Jesus. Uh, you know, but the problem is, is that the scriptures could, that none of us are righteous. So, and I have to warn you about this program and I always have to warn people different in different ways. And one of the warnings is, is that this program is not politically correct. Yeah. It, um, in fact, uh, to the American politically correct, and I would even say feminized ear, uh, this this program is the equivalent of fingernails on a chalkboard. And the reason why is because I am obnoxiously certain that Jesus is the one true God in human flesh. And I am obnoxiously certain that there is a such thing as truth and error. And uh, I don't have a problem saying that the that truth is true and error is false. And to make matters worse... I have fun along the way, and I even use that really nasty, terrible tactic, that disgusting thing known as sarcasm. Yeah, we use sarcasm and humor here. And you're thinking, oh, how could he be a Christian and use sarcasm and humor? Well, I'm in good company. The Elijah, Elijah the prophet used sarcasm. Jesus used sarcasm. I'm in good company, and I understand that to... The uh, feminized, uh, sissified, uh, politically correct uh, American sensibilities that have been instilled in us, uh, thanks to the liberals in this country, that uh, I should probably, you know, in their eyes, I should be taken out and crucified. Um, but, uh, and, and it's just, it won't sit well with you. So if you, you know, if you're looking for a program that... Uh, isn't sarcastic, doesn't employ humor, isn't so certain, isn't obnoxious with the truth. And yeah, you know, that if that if you're looking for that type of program, you haven't found it. Um, you know, you need to um, find a different program to listen to, and I'm okay with that. It's it's absolutely okay with me if you want to go find something that's more along the lines of Oprah. I, you know, it's not really upsetting to me at all. However, if you want to hear the truth. 
spoken boldly, authoritatively, and have a little fun along the way, then this is an absolutely rip-roaring fun program and at times can be rather educational and a bit sharp. So that being the case, we uh, we move on from there. And oh, by the way, I, from time to time, I'm even known to be wrong. All you got to do is show me from God's word. Yeah, it, what I find interesting, <clears throat> the reason I bring this up is because uh, today on uh, on Twitter, I I had the really uh, the audacity of uh, of basically using a little bit of sarcasm. I had a an exchange with Jay Baker. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jay Baker, you know, the son of uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, you know, the the he's kind of an emergent guy. We talked about him a few weeks ago and his uh and his uh well, it, let's say promotion his uh his belief that uh, the, the Bible has no problem with homosexuality. And uh, and so he he posted something up on Twitter, basically saying that, you know, the, the retweeting something from the emergent village uh, blog and uh you know, to the effect that the that the uh theologians on the uh, on the internet need to be uh accountable to the body of Christ and i kind of fired back and i said oh contraire emergent theology needs to become accountable to the word of god now this led to an interesting exchange and what ended up happening was is that uh you know jay baker accused me of basically uh judging people who disagree with me and i tried to explain to him i said it's, you know, i'm not the issue the issue is that there are some people who claim to be christian teachers yet they teach things that are contrary to God's clear word. In that case, they're deceivers. And actually, we shouldn't be shocked about this because if you're very familiar with the New Testament, uh, the New Testament authors, the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warned us that this would be the case. Anyways, and so I asked Jay Baker a question. I said, do you seriously think that you can just brush aside the word of God because you don't like what it says? And then I asked the real tough question, who made you God? Now, why did I ask such a terrible, tough, politically incorrect question? Who made him God? Well, the reason why is because when you basically approach the scriptures with the the idea that anything I disagree with, I'm going to find a way to get around, brush aside, and or ignore, then you're making yourself God and you're not bending the knee to the one true God. The Bible is true whether you want it to be true or not. And, unfort and even in my case, I have found myself in that really thorny, prickly situation more than once where I have had to change my opinions and bring them in line with the word of God because my opinions contradicted the word of God. Or I should say God's word contradicted my opinions. That's probably the better way of saying it. And the re and so what happens when that happens? I need... I have to bend the knee and go, all right, God's word wins. And that's what Sola Scriptura is all about. Anyway, so you know, I offered Jay Baker. I said, I told him, I said, I think that we should have a public debate. Because, see, one of the things these people do is, is that if you quote Scripture to them, they say that's just your opinion of Scripture. Remember back to my uh, conversation with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper. And I quoted to her Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
All I did was quote the passage. All I did was say, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And she let me have it with both barrels of her shotgun. You're twisting that passage. The reality was I I wasn't even interpreting it. All I did was quote it. (laughs) So anyway, that's the thing. People basically are of the opinion that if you if you are a Christian and you claim that homosexuality is a sin, that's not really what the Bible teaches. That's just your opinion or, you, or your personal interpretation of the Scripture. And they can have a personal interpretation that's different than you, and your interpretation can't be truer than their interpretation. So there's no such thing as truth, and you can basically believe whatever you want to believe. So there. <laughs> so I offered yes, – I told Jay Baker, I said, we should have a public debate. An absolute public debate. I am more than willing to come to New York City or wherever. We'll pick a place where we can, you know, that's kind of on neutral turf. We'll invite people to come. And what we'll do is we'll open up the Bible and see what God's word says on the issue of homosexuality. I told him it would be fun. It would be educational. He, he, He didn't seem all that excited about it. So I said, listen, I said, I'm sure. That if your opinions regarding homosexuality are compatible with God's word, then they will hold up under scrutiny and cross-examination. I said, after all, you claim, Jay Baker, that you take the Bible very seriously. Well, if that's true, then an open Bible debate would only vindicate you. Well, anyway, what ended up happening is, is that Jay Baker didn't seem to warm up to the idea of having a public debate with me on the topic of the Bible and homosexuality. His response was pretty terse. It was, no thanks. So uh, after that little exchange, I just sent out a little tweet that basically said, I'm beginning to have doubts that Jay Baker is going to invite me to his Christmas party this year. It's just a feeling that I have. And it, it was a little bit sarcastic. God admit it was a little bit sarcastic. But, you know, again, you know, what did I do? Hey, I'm willing to come out in public, open up the scriptures and debate this topic. And he, he's not having anything of it. So then here's the here's the fun part. I'm kind of conveying the story. There's a gentleman on Twitter who's been contacting me who is pretty much in my face explaining to me that he believes that the Bible affirms gay marriage, yet he has yet to provide me with a single passage of scripture that says anything to that effect. And he got all unglued and said that, um, well, how do, how do I put this politely? He, he basically said that my, my sarcasm and my vile hatred are disgusting, and they're a disgusting blemish on the white gown of the body of Christ, and that I need to repent. So the juicy irony here is that this is coming from a person who claims that homosexuality is not a sin and that God affirms homosexual marriage. So when I just say something to the effect of I'm beginning to have doubts that Jay Baker is going to invite me to his Christmas party, all of a sudden I'm the one who is a blemish on the body of Christ and I need to repent. Now, I just basically quit back to him. I said, listen. The prophet Elijah and Jesus Christ both used sarcasm, sent him references. And I said, I'm in good company. Don't need to repent. And I asked him, I said, could you please post, send me those scriptures where God affirms gay marriage and 
and that homosexuality is in a sin. Still haven't seen those passages yet. Anyway, so <clears throat> this program is rough and tumble. I say things that will make people weep and gnash teeth. I say things that will make people upset. And I know it. And I've been called a hater many times for speaking the things that I speak. And I understand that there are times when I speak in such a way that it's just, it doesn't seem loving. That's only if you define love as this sissy, pillowy, fluffy kind of love that would never dare to hurt someone's feelings. See, the truth is true rather regardless of what you feel about it. And at times, believe it or not, it's actually progress. I know this is going to sound like heresy. Just work with me here for a second. Believe it or not, it is actually progress sometimes when somebody gets angry at you. I have found that some of my best conversations with non-Christians and people I disagree with have come after they have finally gotten angry with me. Because <laughs> now I know I have their attention. So sometimes, sometimes, not always, sometimes the proclamation of the truth requires you to do it in such a way that you get in someone's face to the point where they are so angry with you that they call you names and really want to physically harm you. Now, I understand that, that you know your, ins your health insurance company may not... Uh, approve of such behavior, but believe it or not, when somebody's angry with you, that's generally a good time to talk to them if they continue in the conversation. You know, so now if you're just being ornery to be ornery, nah, that's not exactly progress. But uh, anyway, I, I just bring all that out. So today we've got an interesting program lined up. Uh, I'll tell you ahead of time, our sermon review today is from a Paul Washer sermon entitled The Gift That Nobody Wants. I, what's funny is I, I sent out a, a Twitter tweet and uh, posted up on Facebook that I was going to be reviewing a Paul Washer sermon. And Marcus Pittman, he, he comments back, what did Paul Washer do wrong? <laughs> Hey, listen, remember, here at Fighting for the Faith, we review the good, the bad, and the, the ugly. So it's uh, it's uh, it's all a mix. And Paul Washer, I consider to be a dear brother in Christ, and uh, he will be getting an absolutely fair shake, just like everybody else here at Fighting for the Faith. I got an email uh, from, uh, from Great Britain. Hang on a second here. Uh, Richard Watts. Uh, from Nottinghamshire, he uh, he chimed in regarding the claims of Zeitgeist regarding the god Horus, and this is just a very well written email. We'll be reading that, and uh, let's see, we've got a, a Christian Post story. A church, uh, Christ, church loving Christians are making a case for organized religion, and uh, and then if uh, time allows. I'm going to also be uh, reading a, a news story about conservatives are blasting the Church of England regarding their twofer special. Yeah, we'll talk about their twofer special here uh, shortly if we can get, if we have time. And then we're going to be looking at Acts 11 and 12 today. Didn't get a chance to do that yesterday, so we got a good program. Get comfortable however you would want to do that. However, it is the summertime, so the fuzzy bunny slippers are absolutely out of bounds. Just want to let you know that ahead of time. And before we dive into email, it's that time. And you're saying, what do you, what do you mean it's that time? It's that time. Folks, are you familiar with the Fire the Grid worldwide event? It's now that time. It's time 
for the Fire the Grid worldwide event. It's th- it's right now. This this minute. This it's happening this second. What? What are you talking about? Listen in. This was emailed me, to me earlier today. Listen in. On Tuesday, July 28, 2009, lightworkers across the world will take part in one of the most powerful global events leading to the Golden Age. We are all being called to participate on this historic day. It is the day we will once again fire the grid. What? Uh, what? <laughs> This is a, a YouTube video called Fire the Grid, a worldwide event that's supposed to take place on June 28, 2009 at 6.19 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now it's supposed to be this – this, it's happening right now. Let's, let's listen and find out a little bit more details. This is for um, light workers. Fire the Grid is a movement for active co-creation. It is a vehicle for light workers to connect across the globe. What's active co-creation? And why do I get the feeling that the light workers they're referring to are not the guys who work for the electric company? To combine their infinite love, joy, peace, and freedom in a united effort to create worldwide change. If you are not familiar with Fire the Grid, it began on July 17, 2007 when light workers combined their efforts at a single point in time and brought through source energy to heal the earth with love and light. We're going to heal the earth with love and light? Why do I feel like this was probably induced by some kind of illegal narcotics? We continue. The results were astounding. It demonstrated how great in numbers we are and how powerful a co-creative collective This music is making me fall asleep is. We brought forth a new vibration and they brought forth a new vibration. Do do any of you folks out there have a decoder ring for this fire the grid terminology out there? I'm I'm having a tough time tracking with this stuff. Launched a life-altering shift in the energy which truly made a difference in our world really that made a difference in the world okay while the emphasis of the first fire the grid event was based on worldwide healing many light workers found themselves becoming individually cleared and activated in the process uh-huh. this has led us to our present moment two years later yeah when we once again have the opportunity to create a significant impact on the world and future generations. Right, they're going to have a they're going to fire the grid and have a significant impact on future generations. What does any of this mean? This is supposedly this big global harmonic convergence thing that's happening right now and I don't even understand a word they're talking about. We are at the precipice of the golden age and the time to act is now yeah uh-huh here at www.harmonicutopia.com harmonic utopia um, we are celebrating this momentous occasion by gathering our community of light workers together 
on Tuesday, July 28th, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern, to share in this experience in the essence of oneness. Uh If you are not part of our community... Don't go into the light. Don't go into the light. I can't help it. I can't help it. It's so beautiful. (laughs) We would love to meet you. Those already part of our soul family are asked to share in this event with friends, family, and fellow light workers. What is a light worker? We will be preparing a loving portal for all to enter into a self-guided meditation at the uh, self-guided meditation. Hey, is Rob Bell and the Mars Hill Bible Church participating in this Fire the Grid event? A specified time of the grid's firing, supported by meditative music during the entire hour. After the Fire the Grid event has ended, we will be asking the audience to share in their experiences. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. We are asking participants to document their intentions, what we wish to see for the world and ourselves. Uh-huh. Here at harmonicutopia.ning. Okay, this is... <coughs> oh, man, sorry. I, I must have fallen into a... Tra- you know what this reminds me of? <clears throat> Hang on a second here. Yeah. See if you remember this. I want to be a Care Bear. Oh, it'll be so great when I'm a Care Bear. You know, I'm thinking that there's no difference between these light workers for the fire the grid thing and care bears. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty much what I think that was. Hi, How is it? You, by the way, did you notice that the whole fire the grid thing, the entire language being used here, just doesn't make any sense? And and how would you know that any of this is true? Well, you ha- you find it within yourself. This is all subjectivity gone amok. It's as uh, valid as um, the claims of the Book of Mormon. How do you know the Book of Mormon is true? Because you have a burning in your bosom. You can fire the grid and within you. Uh, oh, man. And this is going on right now. big global thing called fire the grid. <coughs> oh, man. No, thanks. I'm going to stay with Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know that Jesus is alive by looking in my heart or being a care bear or firing the grid or having a, a, a harmonic convergence of the ohm. No, I know that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh because the eyewitnesses to his life and to his ministry claim that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, a man of history, and that uh, three days after he was crucified, he was raised from the dead, ate fish with them, had meals with them, let him touch his body. 
Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> moving along to email, I got an email here from uh, Richard Watts from uh, uh, Nottinghamshire in the UK, and uh, he's a pastor there. And he writes, he says, hey, Chris, uh, this might interest you in light of recent episodes. A while ago, I checked out certain claims against the historical record in relation to Horus in Egyptian mythology and similarities to Jesus Christ, the results of which displayed the deceit and anti, that the anti-Christians will use to try to undermine our faith. You know, uh, 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 Pastor Watts, let me, let me, re- let me kind of take your point and, and piggyback on it re- real quick. You're absolutely right about the fact that they're using deceit. What I think is rather interesting is, is that um, the movie Zeitgeist is a, a movie about conspiracy theories. Yet, when you really look at the evidence for the things that they're claiming regarding Christianity, they are absolutely duplicitous in uh, in their claims regarding the origins of Christianity, so much so that you can only, de- you can, the only correct conclusion that you can come to is that they conspired to tell lies about the origins of Christianity in order to promote their uh, propaganda. And what is it that Zeitgeist promotes? Basically, it's called anti-money socialism. It's basically a warmed-over 21st century neo, um, well, uh, postmodern Marxism. Is that what we're talking about here? And uh, they they have conspired to lie about Christianity in order to make the claims regarding their economic theory. Why would you need to do that if your economic theory was valid? Why wouldn't you instead just debate the merits of your alternate economic theory rather than conspire to lie about Christianity? Just a point. Anyway, so let me come back to his um, uh, uh, to uh, Pastor Watts' email. He says, "Claim Hor- the, the movie claims that Horus was a, born of a virgin Isis Mary on December 25th, that the birth was announced by a star in the east, and he was born in a cave or a manger. The truth is that Isis was married to Osiris and was not a virgin. Absolutely true. I've been looking up uh, some of these facts myself. Uh, He was said to be born on a day which corresponds to the 15th of November in Egyptian terms in the uh, the month of Koyak. Isis Mary is not a name known in the records. The name is Isis. Mary being added by uh, modern-day deceivers to make it sound like Mary, as in, you know, the Virgin Mary. Horus was born in a swamp, not a cave or a manger, and the birth was not announced by a star. The movie claims that there were three wise men at the birth. Truth. No, they were not in the mythological records of Egypt. Not that the Bible says that there were three wise men anyway. Uh, the movie claims that the name of the father of Horus was Seb, which is the name, uh, same name as Joseph. Truth, Seb was the father of Osiris, not Horus. There is no link in any case between the names Seb and Joseph. Claim, Horus at the age of 12 taught in the temple and was baptized at 30 in a river, which is the same as the Jordan by Anup the baptizer. Truth, he never did either. There is no such character as Anup the baptizer in the records. What? what a noop dog doesn't exist, man? Sorry. <clears throat> uh, the movie claims that Horus had 12 disciples, but the truth is that he had four called Heru Shemsu. There are There is no record of 12, and none were named An, An or Anup, who was supposed to equate uh, to the two Johns. Claim Horus exercised demons and raised El Azaris from the dead. 
the truth, both events are not in the records, and Osiris is never referred to as El Azaris, which is a clumsy attempt to make him sound like Lazarus in an English in English anyway. <laughs> yeah, duh. I, yeah, I get that. The movie claims Horus walked on water, was called Holy Child, Son of the Father. Yusa delivered a sermon on the mount, his followers recounting the sayings of Yusa, and he was transfigured on, on the mount and would reign for a thousand years. Truth, all of this is complete fabri fabrication and doesn't appear in Egyptian mythology. Horus was never called Yusa, and the word does not exist. Yeah. <clears throat> Claim, Horus was crucified with two thieves buried in a tomb and, and on the third day rose again. Truth? No, that's not, that's not truth. The truth is that's untrue. One story relates his death, that he died, was cut in pieces and put into water and fished out by a crocodile. You know, uh, funny enough, uh, Pastor uh, Watt, I found another uh, basically e Egyptian website that says that Horus was not kill crucified. He was actually uh, uh, killed by scorpions. So there's... Anyway, <clears throat> the movie claims that uh, or the, the claim is, is that he shares the same title as those given to Jesus, Lamb of God, Messiah, Anointed, Good Shepherd, The Way, The Truth, The Word, and so on. The truth is Horus had none of these titles, but was known as the Great God, Master of Heaven, Avenger of His Father, and Chief of the Powers. And the movie claims that Horus w uh, came to fulfill the law. Truth, there was no law for him to fulfill. Uh, the, the claim is that Horus was called the father and associated with the fish symbol that was uh, called the Christ, meaning the anointed one. Truth, no, he wasn't. It could be argued that Horus was a fish, but that's about it. In Egyptian, in Egyptian, Christ means burial, not anointed one, and he was never called by this title at all. It, it really is amazing the lengths to which the enemies of Christ will go to attack him. You wonder why they care so much, perhaps because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through the Son. Amen. Glory be to God. Great email, Pastor Watts. Fantastic. Yeah, it, in fact, I'm working on a YouTube video uh, myself uh, to uh, basically challenge these claims of this movie and, and put it into a different format to you know kind of get something else out there to uh, combat these blatant lies regarding the origins of Christianity. And it, I mean, it's 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 terrible scholarship altogether. These people are, are fabricating histories about egyptian deities uh in that's how the lengths to which they'll go to suppress the truth about jesus christ it really is sad really really is sad all right we're up on our first break and when we come back we'll do a little bit more uh news uh got the uh christian news uh christian post story regarding the church loving uh christians are making a case for organized religion who would have thunk and um I don't know if we're going to get to this twofer story or not. Probably not. The twofer story might have to wait till tomorrow. We're going to get into Acts chapter 11 and 12. And then for today's sermon review, we're going to be doing uh, the Paul Washer sermon entitled The Gift That Nobody Wants. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can do so. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Oh, 
listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theo-capitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. 
I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Uh huh. News straight ahead here. Sorting things out. By the way, kind of reviewing some of my mentions here on Twitter. There's apparently a fake James White. Now, I did. I had no idea that James White was twittering, but apparently he's not because the fake James White is. Uh, twittering for him I, it always intrigues me those guys who you know there was a guy uh, not too long ago who was the fake rick warren and he was blogging as if he was rick warren Cr- kind of cracks me up i my, i like the fake darth vader i mean the guy who does darth vader on twitter he's pretty funny too anyway <clears throat> need to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing fighting for the faith to you you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. It's also the home of our archives. And uh, you can find one of our friendly yellow donate buttons right there on the homepage. And you can uh, then make your, send your gift in instantly. and uh, Or you can do it the traditional way. That's to make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. And send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, when I saw this uh, next, when I saw this uh, news story on the uh, Christian Post website, my eyes perked up. I thought, "Well, this is kind of backwards," you know, because you know, for years we've been told that people don't like organized religion, and the headline on this one seems to sound like a bunch of backwoods, uh, one-toothed uh, Christians in favor of organized religion are now out there making a case for it. Actually, I thought it was kind of interesting enough to pass along to you. So uh, with <laughs> with that in mind, here's our vintage news music. Headline reads, Church-loving Christians make case for organized religion. 
I can see Rick Warren right now just rolling his eyes. We don't do organized religion anymore. We're into disorganized religion. Anyway, uh, the story reads... Who wrote this, by the way? Hang on a second here. The uh, person who wrote... This is Lillian Kwan, Christian Post reporter, who put this one out. It says, We've all heard the countless reasons Americans don't like the church. Bookstores are full of writings that critique the church and talk about why people left the pews. Uh, basically, the church has been taking a beating, as one Christian author says. Quote, there's really nothing out there that we could see that really affirmed the local church. Ted Cluck, a lay member of University Reformed Church in East Lansing, Michigan, told the Christian Post. His pastor, Kevin DeYoung, has read the books and seen the reports and laments the growing movement of having God without the church. That's right, the religious but not spiritual, or spiritual but not religious people in the yeah, and the ever so popular thing nowadays that uh, I, I I don't do organized religion. Anyway, <clears throat> quote: I see the church derided with mockery and scorn. I see critics exaggerating her weaknesses and incapable of affirming any of her strengths. DeYoung says I see many leaving the church instead of loving her for better or for worse. I see lots of my peers who have twenty twenty vision for the church's failings but are nearsighted to their own pride and self-importance and mutual self-congratulation. Them are fighting words. In a rare move, Cluck and DeYoung have put out a book that offers reasons why they love the church. Church is not a plural for Christian, as most people seem to define it, but as the institution. As DeYoung writes in Why We Love the Church in Praise of Institutions and Organized Religion, Quote, increasingly we hear glowing talk of a churchless Christianity. These days, spirituality is hot, religion is not. Community is hip, but the church is lame. But while non-Christians are liking Jesus and not the church, and Christians are being told they can do fine with God apart from the church, the authors are urging them to give church another chance. We don't want Christians to give up on church, DeYoung says. Considering most are familiar with why so many people are disillusioned with the church, i.e. they're tired of the church's failings, it's filled with hypocritical and judgmental people, you know, like me, uh, we, we go straight into the why the church is worth it and why it's even essentially in a believer's life, essential in a believer's life. Firstly, Christ loves the church, DeYoung says in the beginning of the book. The church is the bride and also the body of Christ, as the Bible describes it. Quote, the church we love is as flawed and messed up as we are, but she's Christ's bride nonetheless. The Reformed pastor writes, and I might as well have a basement without a house or a head without a body as despise the wife my Savior loves. Another thing Christians must remember is that there will always be aspects of the church that are unpopular, including an objective moral order and a gospel that is not only about love and grace, but also about judgment and repentance. DeYoung sounds like he has a level head. He sounds like one of these, uh, he's a hater too. He's a hater like me. And, he, and too many times churches have been too eager to be liked, DeYoung notes, whether it's lusting after academic recognition or cultural validation. Quote, being disliked by teenagers and 20-somethings is not our biggest problem, he points out. Cluck, who offers a layperson's perspective in the book, also notes that rejection is going to be the part a part of the lives of believers. Not everybody's going to like us or our message, he says. And he's right, by the way. i got to kind of insert here. Jesus Christ, when he commissioned the 70, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the commissioning of the 70, but you know, prior to his death and resurrection, he was basically 
training the apostles on how to do evangelism. And one of the things he told them, if you go into a city and they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet and move along. Yeah, I know it just sounds crazy, but I mean, believe it or not, Jesus didn't say, well, what you need to do then is you need to do a sociological survey and figure out what their what their, their cultural uh, mores are and then adapt the message in such a way as that you don't compromise the central piece of it in order to uh, uh, in order to make the gospel more appealing. Right, right. So uh, DeYoung and Cluck here, I think they get it. <clears throat> Still, Cluck wants people to go and experience church despite its unpalatable and sometimes imperfect packaging. Quote, there are some core things about churches that on the surface may not seem terribly entertaining. It may not have amazing coffee. The praise team might not be drop-dead gorgeous and talented. But as long as the preacher's preaching passionate expositional sermons from the text— those are tough to find. As long as they praise and worship, uh, the praise and worship is God-centered and authentic and real. God-centered. Um, those uh, those types of uh, that type of worship is tough to find too. A lot of the uh, praise band worship that called worship nowadays doesn't center on God. It's all about me. And, and sorry, I'm interjecting here. And, and authentic and real. As long as your church body is praying together, meeting one another's needs, reaching out to the community. As long as those things are in place. Those are signs of a great church, he commented to the Christian Post. DeYoung describes the church as both organism and organization. It's a growing and living thing, and at the same time, it's comprised of a certain order with institutional norms, doctrinal standards. Doctrinal standards? Uh, DeYoung, didn't, don't you know the emergent church got rid of all doctrinal standards whatsoever? DeYoung, and we continue, it's a growing and living thing. At the same time, it's comprised of certain order with institutional norms, doctrinal standards, and defined rituals. And Sunday morning worship, he notes, isn't about coming together for a few songs and an oration. It's an exercise in covenant renewal, a weekly celebration of the resurrection, and a foretaste of the heavenly banquet to come. I like what this guy's saying, but don't you realize that he sounds so out of place? Stating it bluntly, DeYoung stresses Christianity is not whatever we want it to be. Oh, well, there you go. Now he's done it. This is going to completely burst the bubble of a bunch of people. They're going to be challenged by that statement. Christianity is not whatever we want it to be. Oh, calm now. Don't you understand that's what the seeker-driven movement and the emergent church movement is all about? It's the smorgasbord Christianity, the customized, tailored-to-fit-your-own-personal-idolatries form of Christianity. It's Christianity on my terms. Christianity my way. You know, it's it, what was that? Uh, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. You know, that whole uh, Burger King thing, you can have it your way. Yeah, that's what people think Christianity is. It's 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 a potpourri of uh, all the spiritual things they think about, and, they, and then they conform Christianity into them and what they... <clears throat> so apparently DeYoung, I don't know, I, how many of these books do these guys think they're going to sell? What, three? I speak sarcastically. This is a very serious topic, but realize just how completely backwards this guy sounds because the church has completely abandoned this. What DeYoung and Cluck are saying here used to be, for thousands of years, the norm within Christianity. And now here in America, this sounds, this is so bizarre it gets written up in the Christian Post, and people are scratching their heads going, 
there's actually somebody out there making a case for organized religion? Or did they just fall off the turnip truck? Where'd these two come from? <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> let's see here. Quote, Christianity is not whatever we want it to be. It, it is, whether we like it or not, organized religion. And the church is what gives its organization shape and definition. And that's the main reason why many people don't like it. People don't like the church because the church has walls. It defines truth, shows us the way to live, tells us the news we must believe if we're to be saved, the East Lansing pastor writes, and he's correct. Uh, but it's those walls that Cluck seems to love and finds beauty in, offering some practical reasons why he loves his church. Cluck lists propositions. What is his church? Uh, what his church believes and affirms? Sincerity, small group, uh, uh, Regner, a, a filmmaker um, buddy, mentoring, structure, elders. And deacons, lack of happy endings. Believers don't always have the nice utopian st story where God makes everything better. Community and preaching. Quote, there are many people leaving the church and supposedly finding God, Clug writes. But I found him here, and by his grace, I'll keep finding him here. I love my church. You know, that's a great point here at the end. There are, quote, Christian authors telling people that they're going to find God outside of the church. Yet... Churches that proclaim Christ and him crucified Sunday after Sunday proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Those are the churches where you can speak with certainty that people will find the one true God. You send them out into the world and tell them they're going to find God without the church. Uh, they might find a God, all right, but there's absolutely no guarantee. In fact, uh, the chances are 99.999% that they won't find the one true God outside of the church. So kudos and Godspeed to uh, DeYoung and Cluck here. I hope that their book sells. But, man, i got to tell you, it's rather interesting that these guys are making this case, and it just sounds so crazy. So how could they possibly think that anyone's going to want to hear this stuff? <sighs> Anyway, so <clears throat> that's the day we live in. All right, we're going to switch gears here and get back into the book of Acts. We've been working our way through the book of Acts specifically due to the fact that uh, I want you to be familiar with this and to hear how the Christian church really got started. So far, we're in Acts chapter, we, we finished Acts chapter 10, and... Um, Actually, actually, I think we finished uh, 11. Um, yeah, we did finish 11. We're now in Acts chapter 12. Sorry, we finished Acts chapter 11. And so far, none of the apostles have done a sociological survey, nor have they crafted a message that was seeker-friendly. Um, everything seems to center on Jesus, 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 Jesus. Uh, Jesus fulfilling prophecy. Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus uh, offering forgiveness. Everything seems to be about him. And wouldn't you believe it? There's people who are literally becoming Christians as a result of uh, their proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Shock. That's the point. We continue. Acts chapter 12 now. Now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now... I've got to point something out here. Uh, those liberal scholars out there who like to make the claim that the Gospels weren't written until like almost 50, 40, 50 years after the events re they record, hogwash. Okay? The fact that James was 
martyred. Other people were arrested, including Peter. That would have been seen as basically to them as they could potentially be martyred pretty quick. In fact, there was means, motive, and opportunity here for them to document and get those Gospels written quick because there was no guarantee they were going to be around tomorrow. And this persecution happened very, very early on in the existence of the Christian church. To basically say that the apostles uh, you know, felt nonchalant, no big deal, don't need to write any of this down. You know, we're going to live and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll write it in our memoirs when we're, uh, after we're retired and, um, and, and drinking uh, margaritas on the beach down in Mazatlan. That doesn't make any sense. They didn't know from day to day whether or not they were going to be arrested or murdered. And here, one of the prominent apostles, James, um, he's put to death with a sword. Just want to point that out. <clears throat> All right, so we continue. So uh, when when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, and this was during the days of unleavened bread, so the, during the Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went and followed him. He did not know that he was this, he, that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for one of its own. Uh, it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said. Now, I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But mentioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said to them, Tell these things to James and the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for, uh, for peace because their country depended on Herod's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, 
And the people were shouting, This is the voice of a God and not man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of the Lord, the word of God, increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, and Barnabas, Simeon, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness and full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them, returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it, and for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie." Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come to you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these, thing, that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you then thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There we go. Great stuff. Notice Paul's preaching. He proclaims Christ resurrected from the dead, fulfilled the prophecies, and basically the the the, the tail end of the sermon announces to them, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So what does he do? He preaches repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and he uses the Old Testament to do it. And as many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. And ultimately, what ended up happening, Paul and Barnabas ended up leaving that city, shaking off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium, the people who rejected. He shook off the dust against them. Those who believed, believed. Those who didn't, they shook off their dust and went on 
there are going to be people who do not believe the gospel. You don't then change the message to appeal to their cultural sensibilities. You shake off your dust, shake the dust off your feet, and move on. Preach the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. All right, we're up on our second break. And when we come back, we're going to be reviewing a Paul Washer sermon. It's a pretty long sermon called uh, The Gift That Nobody Wants. And so uh, you definitely don't want to miss that. And uh, so stay tuned. Those of you listening on Christian Worldview Network, if you want to hear that sermon review, you got to log in to fightingforthefaith.com because we only broadcast the first hour of our program on uh, Brandon House's uh, network there. So just want to remind you of that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith or even previous programs, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Uh, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys, dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We are back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith straight ahead. We're going to be listening to a Paul Washer sermon. Now, I've received a ton of requests to review Paul Washer's uh, a, a Paul Washer sermon. So, I'm giving in. <laughs> the name of the sermon is The Gift Nobody Wants. And uh, this uh, request came in... Uh, this one was uh, basically elected via Facebook, so just want to let you all know that. All right, uh, it's time for our sermon review, so that means that uh, we have to play our sermon review music here at Fighting for the Faith. It is a tradition, and being a traditionalist, I, I, I guess I'm beholden to the tradition. So here, here it is. That's right, the good, the bad, the ugly. Let's go. 
we review it all. And for those of you nervous that I won't give Paul Washer a fair shake, no, I will. I consider Paul Washer to be a very dear brother in Jesus Christ. Do I agree with him on everything? No. Do you all agree with everything that I say? No. <laughs> but what we'll be listening for while we're reviewing this Paul Washer sermon, specifically his use of law and gospel. Is he using the law lawfully? Is he using the gospel correctly? Is he, bring, is he using the law to condemn sins? And then using the gospel to comfort us with the message of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Now, if I had to guess ahead of time, if Paul, if Brother Paul has uh, one weakness, it may be that he's a little heavy with the law. Well, let's see how he does, though. I mean, let's give him a fair shake and a fair listen. All right, enough of that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so without any further ado, uh, we're going to dive into today's sermon. It's entitled The Gift That Nobody Wants uh, by Brother, <clears throat> that, and I do mean that sincerely, Brother Paul Washer. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 7 and also to Mark chapter 1. Uh, already, do you notice a difference uh, compared to uh, any of the seeker-driven guys? You want me to what? Open my bi Bible? Yeah. He's going to actually teach the Bible during the sermon. I know this is completely foreign to some of you. <clears throat> Great thing to be doing, though. So complete props and kudos to Pastor Washer here. Yeah, that's the rustling of pages that you Matthew hear. chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So far, really good. He talks about entering through the narrow gate, and what does he then turn around do? Cross-reference it with Christ saying, Repent and believe the gospel. Which, by the way, fits perfectly with what Jesus said in Luke 24 to the apostles, to go into all nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So far, really good. Now, beginning here with Mark, I think it is quite telling what's going on here, and it's quite a rebuke to our modern evangelistic methodology. If we were to rewrite this based upon what we see in the modern evangelical community, it would be something like this. Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who would like to ask me into their heart? Do you see the problem? The language that we use today is not used in the New Testament in any place. Got to stop there. He is absolutely right. Where in the Bible does it say to pray to ask Jesus into your heart? Nowhere. Who would like to repeat this prayer after me? Oh, I see that hand. 
come forward. We see none of that. But in the message of our Lord, we see repent and believe. In the apostolic invitation, we see repent and believe. In the great confessions of the church, we see repent and believe. It is only until we come into this modern time that we hear nothing of repentance and faith unless it's redefined in the context of Receiving Jesus, which means pray this prayer and ask Him into your heart. And if you've done that sincerely, you can stand on the fact that you've been born again. Now that is serious, folks. This is serious. I I preach in many churches where they're absolutely appalled that I do not lead people in prayers. That I simply command with the authority of Scripture that men repent of their sins and believe the gospel and then sit down with them at time for hours explaining to them repentance and faith and praying with them, hoping that Christ be formed in them. They would rather have me get people to raise their hands, come forward, pray a prayer, and then go eat somewhere. This is the reason for all the noise about personal one-on-one discipleship. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, there was this just birth of personal discipleship. And if you talk to many people about the reasons for discipleship, personal discipleship, they would say this. There's just as many people walking out the back door of our church as walking in the front door of our church. They're coming in, they're not staying, and the reason is they're not being discipled personally. Well, first of all, I believe that personal discipleship can be of great benefit. But here's something that I want you to know. The history of the church knows very little about that sort of thing. Most men were discipled through the preaching of the Word of God. So maybe we need all this discipleship because the pulpit is so weak. Ouch. Okay, what's he doing here? He's, uh, he's being a bull in a china shop and everything he's saying is true so far. Interesting. He's not very politically correct. Hmm. But I think that they entirely missed the point. Our brother talked about men seeing the problem but giving the wrong answer. The reason there were just as many people and still are just as many people going out of the church as coming into the church is because the gospel that we're preaching is not the gospel. It's a truncated version of the gospel, and the invitation we give cannot even be found in the New Testament. Now, does anyone have a problem with that? The reason why they are leaving, well, they went out from us because they were not of us. They were not truly converted. And sometimes the Lord will send unique individuals to our church as a rebuke. For example, you'll try to win someone, you will try to manipulate someone, you will try to get someone to make a decision, then you'll work very hard at discipleship, calling them on Saturday night to make sure they're ready for Sunday, going by and picking them up, and following them around like a little puppy, trying to make sure that they walk the Christian life, and then one day some drunk that you don't even want in your church walks in, gets saved, and you can't chase him out. Why? Because God saved him. Am I against personal discipleship? Absolutely not. 
But that is not the reason why people, after they are converted, continue on in their ungodliness. They continue on in their ungodliness because they're still ungodly because they weren't converted. They were not. Now, this is where I would, I would recommend a little bit of caution with him. Here's the deal. It is true that we as Christians, that God sanctifies us, that he, is, he molds us into the image of Christ. He prunes us. He disciplines us. And we don't live like the devil anymore. But at the, on the other end of it, we still struggle with our sin. And so this is where I recommend a little bit of caution. Each and every one of us sins daily and sins much. And so I can't look to myself and my personal sanctification as, as any kind of certain indicator as to whether or not I've been converted, whether or not I am a Christian. Instead, this is why the Lutherans point you to something objective and outside of yourself, extranos, that being your baptism. It's a different way of thinking, and I, I understand where Paul Washer's coming from. And one of the things we see, as far you know, in in churches where, that don't pro- proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, is there seems to be a a whole lot of stuff that goes on in those churches that make Christian eyebrows furl and rise up and go, "What they're doing that in? A, what's wrong with those people?" Well, his claim is is that well, they're they're not converted. He may be right, but the thing is, is that, you know, I, as a Lutheran, I want to get you to something objective. And so this, this sword that he's swinging is double edged. And so you got to be real careful in how you wield it. But uh, we continue with this point. Now here, Jesus Christ comes to Israel. The Messiah arrives in Israel and he says, the time is fulfilled. Everything the scriptures ever talked about. I'm its answer. Now this is your response. Repent and believe the gospel. And you say, well, this was Christ. We are to follow His example and His teaching. And this is not unique to Him. We go over to the day of Pentecost. We find the same authoritative invitation. If you notice in the New Testament, the invitation comes in the form of a command. An authoritative command. And he is spot on here. It is not an invitation to give your life to Jesus. It is abs- it, it, it's almost a prophetic imperative, a command. Repent and believe the gospel. Washer is right on this point. Absolutely right. Repent and believe. Today's invitation does not come in an authoritative command. It comes in a request. Will you please pray with me? The Scriptures come not only an authoritative command, but a demanding command to, as our brother said, take up your cross and follow me. Today, we assure the convert, this will only take five minutes of your time. Then we wonder why the church is in such a state when it doesn't even have the gospel right. And I'm going to tell you this. On Judgment Day... I would rather be standing in the group of liberal politicians waiting to receive my judgment than I would be wanting to stand in the group with conservative pastors in the United States of America. 
Oh. Ha. This is prophetic preaching. Oh, this is a wonderfully wicked use of the law. Perfect. God. Oh. And I mean that. You can thump this Bible all day long. You can talk all sorts of things. But when you stand up and you can't even give a biblical invitation, do not talk to me about the inspiration of Scripture. Oh, man. Loving it. Loving it. This is the law used lawfully. This is going to strip you absolutely naked and have you standing in your unrighteousness before a holy God. This is the right use of the law. When you deal with men's hearts with trivial little creedal prayers and superstitious nonsense, don't talk to me about the infallibility of Scripture unless you're going to also say it's sufficient to teach me how to invite men to Christ. We just have to look at this one text and realize something is terribly wrong. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, both of these commands are in present tense imperative. And I believe that there's, there's an issue here. I believe there's something going on that will cure the malady that is so frequent today in America. It's almost as though Christ is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now spend the rest of your life repenting and believing. Luther talked about the exact same thing. The entire Christian life is a life of repentance. He wrote about this in the 95 Theses. Washer's right. Now, if you talk to the average convert on the street, what will you discover? You'll discover this. Sir, may I talk to you about Christ? Don't worry about me. What do you mean? I've already done that. You've done what? Well, I did that already. Well, what did you do already? Well, I, I, I accepted Him as my Savior. When? Well, about ten years ago. What, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I prayed and asked Him into my heart. Well, could you be a little bit more specific? Well, I've already repented and believed. But they don't realize that the evidence, the raw bone biblical evidence... <coughs> That there was one time in your life that you repented unto salvation is that you continue repenting until today and growing in repentance. They do not realize that if at one time in your life you believed unto salvation, the evidence of that will be you continue believing unto salvation and growing in faith. So the evidence you've truly repented and believed is that God, through His work, continuing work of sanctification, deepens that repentance in your life and deepens that faith in your life. Christianity is not a once and for all flu shot. There is a sense in which our salvation is past tense. The moment we believed, we were justified. Before a holy and just God. 
But what else? Salvation is not just past tense. It's also present tense. He saved me in the past from the condemnation of sin. The moment I believed, He justified me. But He continues saving me in the present tense from the power of sin. And He will one day in the future completely and totally save me from the power, presence, and condemnation of sin. And the evidence that He has justified me is that He is now sanctifying me. A person who can show no mark of the sanctifying work of God in their life has no assurance that they have been justified. Now that's biblical teaching. Now let's go back to Matthew. Enter through the narrow gate, for the, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, I'm kind of tethered down to this micros, this thing here, microphone, so I can't do a drama for you now. But I would like to just kind of act out for you the best I can how we put these two things together. A man is lost. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. And he's walking around nonchalantly, his mind, according to Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and on, is full of vanity and futility. It's darkened. It's wicked. It's given over to the things of the world. Everything he thinks about any spiritual reality is wrong. His mind is an incubator for heresy. That's all it is. And what he's saying is absolutely right. And this can be empirically verified by looking at all of the religions of all of the world. Did the Greeks, did the Romans, did the Chinese, did the uh, Buddhists, did the Hindus get it right? Not one of them proclaims the one true God, nor do they proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. All of them preach heresy regarding God, lies. It's like my dear friend Conrad Mbewe from Africa. He was preaching on uh, John chapter 3. And he said that basically Jesus is sitting there and after Nicodemus got through saying everything he said, Jesus just looked at him and basically said, Nicodemus, you know nothing. And that is this man, this lost man. Given over the futility of his mind, his darkened and hardened and calloused heart. Then what happens? Through the preaching of the gospel, maybe in the form of actual preaching or through a track or the testimony of a friend. He's Notice, he, without saying it, Paul Washer here is in a sense talking about the preaching of the gospel as a means of grace. Listen carefully. He's confronted with the gospel. But it's more than just... A physical opportunity, more than just a physical manifestation, more than just someone handing him something, handing something to him or saying a word to his ear. No, the Spirit of God is working. And the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the gospel, makes his heart alive, illuminates his mind. And for the first time, he begins to see something. What is it? Reality. I've sat down quite a bit trying to think through this idea about repentance because at its most basic 
root, it means a change of the mind. But a change of mind with regard to what? With regard to reality itself. You see, the lost man is walking in this world and he's wrong about everything. He may get some scientific facts right, but when he goes to apply them to how they function in the universe and build a philosophy out of it, he goes awry. Everything is wrong. He may know something about mathematics. He may know something about history. But when he goes to apply it to the human context, it's always wrong. He's wrong about everything because he's wrong about God. That just shows us the futility of university training. How can you give knowledge when you're wrong about the very author of it? The source of it. The one who creates and defines reality. But the moment he hears the gospel through the illuminating... Okay, this is a little tough to hear. I, there's a little segment in here where the audio is a little bit bad. You might have to turn up your uh, device to hear it. it. I could barely hear it, and I'm trying to pick up the gain here. But I'm going to keep through. The, we're going to keep playing through this because I, his points are very good. Form of something that looks like Santa Claus, but he begins to see God, the God of Scripture, as being just. As being holy, as being righteous, as being sovereign, as being supreme, as deserving all glory and honor. Because prior to this, although he knew God, he did not honor Him as God or gave thanks. But now his mind is changing. He's seeing who God really is. But in that same light, he's also seeing who he really is. And he is struck down in his heart. Reality confronts him and he realizes one great truth. He is wrong. Not just a little wrong. Not just wrong about some things. Not just wrong about his ideas. He is wrong about everything he is. The very foundation of reality. He's wrong. And then he begins to see himself. His sin, his filth, his depravity, the arrogance that he would consider himself to be the center of all things. And his heart is broken. It's like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Now think about this. Think about what happened to this man. Now there is a good reason why after this confrontation with Christ, he never... he. he he would not eat or drink. He sat there, I'd imagine, almost like a stone statue. Why? He just didn't have little Jesus come into his life. Jesus showed up and his reality disintegrated. He realized everything he believed about everything was totally and completely wrong. His whole life was a lie. That is repentance. At least the beginning of it. So this man, he's confronted with the truth. And he is seeing God as he's never seen God before. God as he is. And that 
For those of us who are pastors, we need to realize something. The greatest injustice done by pastors to congregations in America is they do not spend any time teaching about God. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you did a series? I mean invested time in teaching your people who God is. Most ministers running around have never even studied the attributes of God or how they apply to the human context. I mean, look, look at us. Why are we running around all over the place looking from nation to nation, this side of the country, other side of the country, buying all these silly books, methodology, church growth, everything else, and we don't even teach our people about God or who is man or the gospel of Jesus Christ or how is a man truly saved? It's absolutely preposterous. And we wonder why the whole thing is in such a shamble. It's absolutely pathetic. But when God comes in the heart of a man, what happens? He sees God. And in the light of that, he sees himself and he's broken. But it is not a repentance unto death, although it may feel like it. Mm-hmm. And it's not a repentance unto desperation, although it will create a desperation in him. Because what happens in that revelation of God and in that revelation of sinfulness comes a revelation of the salvation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The grace of God. And so he's not left to despair. He's not left to death. But that very brokenness breaks forth in joy. But that joy represents something very important. There is now a transference. His joy no longer comes from his own righteousness, his own deeds, or what he thinks about himself. His joy comes from who God is and what God has done for him. So the idolatry is smashed. And then what happens? Well, he's had a pretty full day, so I guess he goes to bed. He gets up in the morning. And what does he do? He's got a Bible. And what happens? This is the Christian life. He begins to study Scripture. He begins to fellowship with the saints. He begins to listen to preaching. And he starts a journey in which little by little, he sees greater a greater revelation of God. And therefore, a greater revelation of his own need. And so his repentance is deepening and deepening and deepening. And then he sees a greater revelation of the grace of God in the face of Christ. And his faith deepens and strengthens. And then his joy births out of that. Until the end of his life, he is more broken in repentance than when he began 60 years prior. And yet at the same time, he is more confident of his salvation and full of joy unspeakable. God has so worked in his life to, in a sense, increase his capacity. His capacity for what? All these silly prosperity preachers, capacity for blessing and all this stuff. They don't even know what they're talking about. Increase his capacity to know God. Increase his capacity to break before Him and to, to be humble of spirit, to experience poverty of, of spirit, increases His capacity to believe because He shows Him more and more of this rock-solid foundation we have in the person of Christ. 
and increases his capacity for joy because he's no longer the source of it. You see, here's what will happen to some of you young street preachers if you're really of God. You go out, you're street preaching, you're radical, you're reading the Bible, you're memorizing Scripture, you're just so full of zeal, and you're full of joy over the things that you're doing. Little by little, God's going to destroy the things you're doing. Because the things you're doing and the things that you think you are, they're your joy. Man, I'm walking, I'm preaching, I'm, I'm a disciple, I'm this, I'm that. And little by little, He's going to take away. He's going to crush your zeal. He's going to crush your strength. He's going to crush your wisdom. He's going to tear you to shreds until you're left with nothing but Him. And then He's going to rebuild you. But there's going to be such a difference. Your joy is no longer going to be your performance. Your joy is going to be the finished work of God in Jesus Christ. So no more idolatry. Oh, this is so good. Oh, man. I should uh, send out a tweet to Rick Warren. He's on Twitter now, daring him to let Paul Washer uh, preach at uh, Saddleback for four Sundays in a row. It's just him. It's just him. It's just him. Now, I want to go to verse 15 of chapter 7, and then I want to jump back to this subject that we're talking about, but I must... I must touch on verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, who are these people? Well, they're sandwiched between 13 and 14, and then the teaching on that begins on fruit in, the, in verse 16 on down. Now, we know as we read further, there are people who seem to have rather dynamic and powerful ministries. After all, they're prophesying. Doing signs, miracles, casting out demons. So they seem to be rather dramatic fellows. Uh, very powerful in their giftings. But if we take seriously verses 13 and 14, and then the preceding verses 16 to 19, it seems that they're sandwiched in here because there's two things missing about these men. One of them is fruit. And what does that automatically tell us? Supposed giftings and supposing signs and power and ministry are not necessarily the same thing as fruit. I would prefer to look back if I were to determine what does Jesus mean here by fruit. I think I would probably wander on back to to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle... Let me, let me say something about this, verse 5, just for a minute. If you want to know what he really means by blessed or the gentle, then you just need to go to Psalms 37, 11. Most people come up with all these different things. Well, you know, gentle or meek doesn't mean weak and all these different things. Let me tell you what he means by this because it's, it's become so precious to me. Just run over there for a minute to Psalms 37. Look what it says. But the humble will inherit the land. The meek will inherit the land. That's what it says in Matthew. 
But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. When he says blessed are the meek or blessed are the gentle or blessed are the humble, what is he talking about? Well, verse 1 of 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. They are men who are confident in their God so that they are not fretful or envious of wrongdoers. They don't fret about them. Why? Because they know that God has set His King on His holy hill. They're not envious of them because they realize in, in their wisdom that they are fools. It goes on. He knows they will wither like grass. They will fade like the green herb. Now, who is the gentle person? One who realizes this. And what does he do in response? Verse 3, he trusts in the Lord and does good. Verse 4, he delights himself in the Lord. Verse 5, he commits his way to the Lord. He trusts in the Lord, knowing that the Lord will do it. That he will bring forth the gentleman's righteousness as light. Verse 7, he rests in the Lord and waits patiently for him and does not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Do you see? It's the man who meekly submits. A man who submits because of the confidence he has in his Lord. He is, he's tame. He's domesticated. He's been trained by the hand of God to walk when God says walk, to talk when God says talk, to be quiet when God says be quiet, to move in certain directions, to go in certain ways according to what the Lord desires. And this training comes by the hand of God. Now, so when we talk about the fruit of these... I would expand on that and say it comes through the... That training comes through the Word of God. That's the only way we can know the mind of God. We continue, but he's not an enthusiast at all. These prophets, they have no real fruit. That's the first thing that we should notice about them. They have no fruit of Christ-like character. Now, young men, especially you, those of you going to ministry, please realize this. You are struggling to do. You need to struggle to be. You're working on giftings and honing giftings. You need to work on honing character. Because I can assure you that's what God is about in your life. He has the character of a man. Everything else will fall in place. Also, I want you to notice something. In verse 13... You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Salt has certain characteristics or properties. If those characteristics or properties are lost, you can replace them with other things, but you don't have salt anymore. Do you see that? In the same way, there are certain characteristics to true discipleship. If you lose those characteristics, you may replace them with other things, but it's not true discipleship. Now, what are the characteristics of true disciple? What does a real disciple of Jesus Christ look like? He's poor in spirit. He mourns over sin. He's gentle. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's merciful. He's pure in heart in the sense of he has no undivided loyalties. He is a peacemaker and he is marked by persecution. Now you want to talk about discipleship? Then grow in that. You want to talk about true discipleship? Grow in that. You want to know what the real core of discipleship is? It's this, and you can't fake this. You can fake a lot of things. You can't fake this. This is where you need to be headed. 
You want to be a radical disciple of Jesus Christ? Then you head right here. It all starts here. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of the character of our Lord. The false prophet has none of this. But he does have giftings. He is quite a speaker. And he is dynamic. And he seems to have some sort of power about him. But know this. His character is the key. Does he bear fruit? A false prophet is known by two things. The fruit that they bear and the gospel they preach. Galatians chapter 1. And you can just line up many of these TV preachers. And just look at the fruit of their life, the way they live, and then look at the gospel that they supposedly preach, and you can mark them off as false prophet immediately. Now he says, he says something unusual about them. He says that they are like wolves. Their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. But they look like sheep. Now how is that? How is it that they look like sheep? By their flattering, smooth speech that in an age of tolerance makes you think that they are the men most full of love. They will never contradict. They will never be, they will never create a scandal. They will never be offensive. They will never speak forth things to anger men. But they have the smooth tongue of a serpent. And they flatter men. And they give carnal men exactly what they want. Now let me tell you something about false teachers. You think so many times that people fall prey to false teachers. And that, in a sense, can be true at times. But I think the dominant theme in Scripture is just the opposite. False teachers are God's judgment on people who don't want God, but in the name of religion, plan on getting everything their carnal heart desires. That's why a Joel Olstein is raised up. Those people who sit under him are not victims of him. He is the judgment of God upon them because they want exactly what he wants and it's not God. I'm going to say that he's absolutely right here. Absolutely right. Interesting. And you can line them all up along with him. That's where it is. Because let's go over. Let's just look for a minute at 2 Timothy. Just quickly. Chapter 4. Verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Now, when he says preach the Word, what does he say? He follows it up with, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort. Notice that that is not what these preachers do. As a matter of fact, they boast in the fact that they do not reprove. They do not rebuke. It's not their ministry. And why do they say it's not their ministry? They have a ministry of love, they say. Well, then are you saying Christ didn't have a ministry of love because He reproved and rebuked and exhorted? And so did Paul. But now look, verse 3. For time will come, and this shows you that men are not so much victims of false prophets as false prophets are the judgment of God upon men who don't want God. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who won't? The people, the religious people identified with Christianity, they will not endure sound doctrine. They can't endure it. They hate it. Or it bores them to tears. And so what do they do? But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. Everybody in this world, I hope you know this, everyone in the world that is involved in Christianity knows that America is the birthplace of every heretical teaching on the face of the earth almost. You know what my greatest fear is? My greatest fear is that the wall around Cuba is going to fall. You say, why would you fear that? Because all of the heresy in the evangelical church will find its way into Cuba. I go into countries and some of the times they will tell me this. Go back to your country and tell them, please don't send any more missionaries. Now, look, we accumulate for ourselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So you get a Benny Hinn in there who all he wants to do is tell you you're going to have a Mercedes Benz. Those people aren't victims. They're, he is God's judgment upon them. They want what he wants. And so they accumulate him to themselves along with all those other teachers because they teach exactly what they want. Do you see that? And why is that? Because a great many people that sit in Christian churches today hate God. You say, what do you mean I hate God? It's like when a preacher many times have asked me, would you just please come and teach on the attributes of God? You've written a manual on it. We really like it. Would you come and teach? I go, look, you probably don't want that. And they go, what, what do you mean? I go, I, I just don't want to divide your church. They go, we're Christian. You're teaching about God. What do you mean divide your church? I said, listen to me, sir. When I start teaching... The attributes of God, and not Paul Washer's version. I'll bring, I'll just bring some historical, systematic theologies and teach out of them. They're all written by Presbyterians. Baptists just don't hardly write anything. <laughs> but I'll bring them, and I'll just read out of them, so you know I'm not inventing this stuff, or it's just my idea. And if I preach the classical Christian view of who God is in your church, I said it won't take long for some of your finest members, especially among the elderly and especially among the women, will walk out of that church with their teeth clenched together and say, My God's not that way. I could never love a God like that. Because the God they've been worshiping is not the God of the Bible. It's a figment of their own imagination. A God they made with their mind and then they worship what they made. And he looks more like Santa Claus than he does Yahweh. (laughs) I love the straight talk. He's, oh, it is refreshing. That's what's going on. The real God. Oh, C.S. Lewis was too tame when he said he's not a tame lion. He's God. And I would not doubt that there are people here that you don't like him. You wouldn't like him if you knew him. Now these false prophets, this is what they do. But know this. They're the judgment of God upon a wicked, defiled people who although they have a knowledge of God, they do not want him. And so God sends them the teachers that they themselves desire. 
Now, now let's go back. Verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Now, I want you to look at this. He's giving us, it's almost, it's almost an, an absurdity that he's putting before us. It's a thing that is, is, like I said, almost absurd. It's like he's looking at them and saying, now, now, let's just get this straight. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, are they? Can't you just see the crowd? Well, Jesus, we know you're not a farmer and everything. You're a carpenter, but you're right on the money here. You're saying the correct things. I mean, if someone comes to you with a thorn bush and says it's a grape tree, don't, grapevine, don't believe it. And he goes on, now, th- figs don't come from thistles, do they? You're on the mark now, Jesus. You're right on the money. If someone comes to you and says Those are, that's a fig tree, don't believe it. It's got thistles on it because that's just not going to happen. It's against nature. And then he says, in the same way, you call yourself my disciple. And yet you do not bear the fruit of a disciple. That too is against nature. The new nature that I create in all my disciples. Notice something. He's saying that the new nature is created by Christ and his disciples. Fine distinction. Well said, Paul. Couldn't agree more. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd to say you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and not bear the fruit of Jesus Christ. Now let's just step back for a moment. Because we want to run as far away as we can get from perfectionism. Does the true believer struggle with sin? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the mark of a true believer is that he's confessional. Not just that he confesses the name of Christ, but his life is marked by the confession of sin. Oh, oh, this is good. Man, this is good. I agree. (laughs) This is so different than the uh, Nazarene uh, legalistic perfectionism. It's, we Christians, it's, it's this horrible life in a way because we're constantly struggling and fighting and uh, against our sin and it's just a miserable fight because it's just over and over and over again even our good works are still marred with this gunk oh it's reprehensible it's it's oh a believer is sensitive to the sin in his life he'll be far more confessional than the unconverted sinner So what do we mean by fruit? We're talking about style of life. I mean, it doesn't, like David Miller says, this isn't rocket surgery. (laughs) It's just the style of their life. Okay, define that. I'm a little nervous. The the ex-Nazarene in me is going, define it right, please. I mean, I, 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 I know Christians and I look at their lives. I study them. They're godly men or godly women. And, and I see sin at times. And I see, I think, where probably they're not understanding something correctly. Or they, they're blind in certain areas of their life. But over the whole of their life, what do you see? You see, someone that God is working in. Someone that God has transformed and continues transforming. There's evidence there that something has happened to this person. Something. I have somewhat of a bone problem. And this morning I was in the pastor's study and I I got out and, and my bones decided they didn't 
my joints just didn't want to bend. And so I kind of came out of office looking like this, and the dear sister saw me, and she goes, what's wrong? How did she know something was wrong? Because of just looking at me. That's sad, but just, she looked at me. She knew something was wrong by the way I moved. Now give me ten minutes in Alabama heat and I'll be just as spry as a young young buck. Okay, now I'm, I'm going to say this. This is where I think the sermon's a little bit weak. And again, the reason why I say it is he's right and I'm a little uncomfortable with it uh, in this sense. It's bringing back almost a subjective argument because... Yeah, he's absolutely spot on about the fact something's different in a Christian's life, and they struggle against their sin, and they confess their sins. It is a daily taking up of your cross. It's this terrible simul justus et peccator. We're simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time, and we literally groan and, and anxiously await the redemption of our bodies in Christ so that we can just be done with all this sin. I agree. However, there are times in my life when that fight is not nearly as strong as others. And so if if I look to the assurance of my salvation to that, uh, it that is a subjective argument that turns me back on myself to where I could despair. That's it. So th- that, from a Lutheran point of view, I think is a weakness in his preaching at this point. Again, I want to point people something outside of themselves, s- something objective. But to the sinner who's comfortable in his sin, oh, 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 oh. that's where you take the law out and you put it on flamethrower and you just let it go. Comfortable sinners need to hear of their sinfulness. And as soon as they crack, you give them the gospel. Now, he t- he, the gospel gets mentioned many, many, many times in here, um, in the sermon. would like to hear it a little bit more clear. You know, and he's preaching the law lawfully. And the observations that he's making about the church are absolutely correct. I'm just, I'm just interjecting at this point, thinking there's a little bit of a weakness, at least from a Lutheran point of view, because he's turning me back on myself... <clears throat> to where I have to subjectively look over the arc of my life to determine whether or not I'm really bearing fruit. (sighs) Okay. But boy, those first few minutes of getting up, it hurts. She noticed something was wrong by the way I moved, the way I functioned, the way I lived. Why is it that something so simple, so common sense is thrown out the window when we come to Christianity? That we actually believe someone can be Christian and yet live a life of continuous rebellion against God. Without remorse, without conviction, without anything. Run wild. Yet they're Christian. Don't you say they're not. Judge not lest ye be judged. Yeah, twist not scripture lest you be like the devil, because that's not what that verse means. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. 
So you see, he's saying, look, there is a reality here. Again, to deny this reality is to deny the very work of God and His intent and the entire purpose of salvation. If you go back to Ezekiel 36, you understand why He saves people. I'm doing this for my name's sake, he says. Jeremiah tells us, I'm making an internal monument to me through the saving work I do in this people. And for preachers to say that a man can live in a continuous state of carnality all the days of his life and then he's, he's somehow miraculously transported into heaven is an absolute denial of everything the New Testament teaches and the Old Testament teaches on the saving work of God, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of sanctification in the life of a believer. Let me just give you an example from the Old Testament that I just dearly love. When God tested Moses... Israel had fallen into idolatry and heinous sin. And God tests Moses and says, basically, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to kill them all. I'll make a people out of you. And, and Moses pleads with God. And basically, his argument is this. You can't do that. Because your enemies will say that although you were able to bring them out of Egypt, you were not able to bring them into their own land. Now, this was from Numbers 14. We read this yesterday. They'll blaspheme you because they'll say that you are not able to complete the work you began. And that is why men blaspheme God today. That's an interesting take on this passage. Let's see what he does with it. Because of the preaching of conservative preachers, allowing for the fact that men can live in a continuous state of carnality and still affirm their salvation. And so the wicked... The unbeliever looks at that and they go, well, God was able, I guess, to begin the work. He saved them from hell. He can't change their life. I mean, what kind of salvation is that? What kind of salvation is that? And thus the prophecy is fulfilled, not so much prophecy as a teaching, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It says, you will know them by their fruits. An illustration I haven't given in a long time, but I just love to give. It's, it's just so simple. You see, now at this point, I, I, would, I really would like to get some, some walls around the definitions that he's throwing out here. Carnality. What's he referring to? You know, are, see, I, I would have to interject here. Are we talking about Christians who struggle with their sin? We all do. Is that, he obviously mentioned that, so that's not what we're talking about here. I think carnality at this point is taken to a whole other level. I mean, this is where church discipline should be acting, and it's not. This would be the, quote, member of your church who claims to be a Christian and um, is in an adulterous affair and has no remorse over it. And then when you confront them with their sin, they basically say, well, um, forget you, pastor. I'm going to do what I want, and they go and find a different church. That would be like the George Tiller it would be the person who is basically flagrantly and openly homosexual and yet claims to be a christian i think we have to put some we have to put some definitions on this at this point otherwise we've got a problem and i'm just pointing it out because he's painting with a broad brush and i'm not getting the finer brush strokes in this at this point and again i'm being thrown back on myself i sin daily and i sin much i can't stand it 
And so daily, I have to, my, my daily Christian life is marked with nothing more than repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's like a daily mantra, if you would. And a prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come, please, Maranatha. We continue. I, I, say I show up late here today and the pastor's all mad at me because I show up late. I say, oh, pastor, don't be mad at me. I walk in, I'm like this, and it's about as good as I get. And uh, he says, what happened? I said, well, I was changing the tire of my car, and a lug nut went out in the middle of the road, and I wasn't thinking, and I walked out there, and I picked it up. And when I picked it up, there was a logging truck weighing 30 tons going 120 miles an hour, and it's like five feet in front of me, and I couldn't move, and it ran me over. So that's why I'm late. He's going to go, there are only two possibilities, logically. I'm sure he studied classical logic. There's only two possibilities. One is I am absolutely insane. Or I am a liar. And when he says, you're either insane or a liar, now I'm going to sit here and debate on which it is. I'm going to say, why are you saying I'm either insane or a liar? Why don't you believe me? And he says, because it's absolutely against nature. It is an impossibility to have an encounter with a logging truck going 120 miles an hour that weighs 30 tons and not somehow be changed by that encounter. Then how can you say you've had an encounter with God and not been changed? Along with millions of other Americans, they've had an encounter with God, but they have not been changed. So God now has less power than a logging truck. You say, Brother Paul, can a Christian sin? A Christian does sin. Brother Paul, can a Christian backslide? Yes, they can. Can they fall into a grievous sin? Yes. Can they stay there? No. Let let me just... you, You know Romans 12, don't you? You know Romans 12. Okay, so we get a little bit of a definition there. What is it? Now, this, the logical question I have is, is this the mark? Yeah, he's talking about something endemic in the church. Is this the normal mark of what we see in so-called conservative Christian uh, seeker-driven churches? The answer to the question is, yeah, actually, I, you see a lot of that. It's a big problem in these seeker-driven churches that there's no preaching of the law and no clear proclamation of the gospel. As a result of it, people who are filling the uh, the stadium seats with the uh, coffee hol- cup holders, uh, they come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. They're still living with their girlfriends. They're not married. Um, uh, you understand what I'm saying here? And yet there's no conviction of their sin to make them feel like they're doing anything wrong. We continue. I'm not Romans 12, Hebrews 12. That the Father disciplines those whom He loves. That if you're without discipline, you're an illegitimate child. Now, I want you to think about something. Let's say I'm your pastor. And I come home from preaching in another place one night really late. It's like 1130 and I come around this corner near your house and your 14-year-old daughter is out there with a bunch of hoodlums. I mean just doing all sorts of things. Now I'm going to be angry as your pastor. I'm, I'm going to burn with indignation. From a testimony, I'm not going to pull up and tell her to get in the car. But I'm going to drive to your house as fast as I can get there. And I'm going to pound on that door until you answer it. And I'm going to say, what on earth is wrong with you? And if you keep this up, I'm going to bring it before the rest of the elders. You repent right now. You're a derelict father. 
You're a derelict. You allow your 14-year-old daughter to run wild in the streets? We would all say that, I think. Man's a derelict. What's he- you know what's funny? This sounds so foreign. It's, who, who do you think you are? Oh, man, he's spot on, though. This is absolutely a great example. Confronting somebody with their sin? Calling them to repentance? What's he doing? Yet you make the same claim about God and even boast in it. You boast in the fact that God has children running around all over this country, full of carnality, steeped in sin, doing whatever they want, and God does nothing according to your preaching. But they're saved, bless God. When you preach their funeral, you'll preach them straight into heaven. I've seen it a thousand times. Remember just a while back, a man in my own town in Illinois who was a known drug addict, drug dealer, fornicator, absolutely everything. And he is there. He passes away. And the pastor of one of the largest Baptist churches in the area, standing there, the funeral, that place is loaded with every person that's hardly ever been in church, drug addicts and everything you can imagine, are all there in church to honor their dead friend. And that pastor gets up and he says, I praise God, I know this young man, he sowed a lot of wild oats, but when he was nine years old, I was there when he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he's in heaven today. And all those lost sinners went straight out into the street justified in their sin because of conservative evangelical Baptist preaching. That's typical in almost every church in this country. It's true. It's true. And it's pathetic. It's pathetic. Definitely burn your face off kind of preaching. Whoop! Yeah, Paul is definitely using the law lawfully here. But again, I want to come back to the point I made earlier. I'm a little skittish about the fact he's pointing us back inside of ourselves and regarding uh, this the fruit thing. And the reason why, again, I'm, I'm nervous about this really has more to do with the Scriptures, but we Lutherans look at things a little bit differently. Let me uh, read to you a passage of Scripture so you don't think I'm just being crazy here. That would be Romans chapter 6, and this issue that's addressed in Romans chapter 6 is the very issue that Paul Washer is discussing here about, you know, as Christians, should we go on sinning? Uh, Listen to the Apostle Paul, and what does he do? Does he point people inside themselves, or does he point them to something outside? Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So already here, the Apostle Paul is in dealing with this issue of pernicious, continuing carnality, if you would, using his term, sin, Paul says, well, no, you can't continue in it. How could you? You've been baptized. Again, this is a, this is a difference, a theological difference between Lutherans and uh, Reformed Baptists, which I think is really what more of what Paul Washer is. 
And I, it, it just it saddens me because I think there's some something really powerful offered here in scriptures, and that is not turning me back on myself regarding sanctification, but turning me outside of myself and, and basically saying, how can I continue to sin when I've been united with Christ, buried with Christ? I've been baptized. I am baptized. That's the power of Romans chapter 6 and, and, and really what the full weight of what it's teaching. Let me continue, though. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he lived, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Why? Because you've been baptized. And there's something ontologically that happens there. Anyway, that would be my that's the, my big biff uh, beef with uh, biff. My big beef here with uh, Paul Washer at this point is is that he's correctly using the law. He's burning your face off law, condemning you, stripping you of your self righteousness, pointing out truly your sinfulness and your wickedness. And he does give us the gospel, but then where's the fruit? You turn it back on yourselves. That's where I get I, I get a little bit squeamish. I agree with his points to a point. But again, I want to point sinners outside of themselves, Christians especially, repentant sinners, outside of themselves, just like the Apostle Paul does, and say, the Apostle Paul agrees with Paul Washer. How can you continue in sin? It's against nature. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You see? We continue. You say, oh, that's mean-spirited. Let me ask you a question. My mother passed away last year. But I remember three years ago when I went to the doctor's office with her because she thought something's not right. And that doctor, very gentle, very noble, he looked at my mother and he says, Miss Washer, he goes, you've got cancer. And he goes, uh, it, it's, it's radical. It's bad. And we've got to move right now if we're going to have any chance of saving your life. I want you to know, that man made my mother cry. He hurt my mom. He ruined her day. We were going to go out to get something to eat. He ruined her week. He tore my mother to pieces. But he tried to save my mother's life. And if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't been so truthful, she'd have had no hope of salvation whatsoever. We'd have had no recourse at all. And he could have been kicked out of his own practice for being immoral. They ought to kick most pastors out of their practice. Because out of cowardice or self-preservation, they will not preach the gospel. That's all there is to it. This job's not for cowards. It may be for wild men and fools, but it's not for cowards. I'm telling you there's too much at stake. Too much at stake to allow this to happen any longer. And it'd be different if it was happening in churches that denied the deity of Christ. 
or substitutionary atonement. But this stuff goes on every day in in men's churches who hold to these truths. But when they get to the gospel, they just seem to lose their minds. This country is not gospel hard and this this country is gospel ignorant because most of the preachers are gospel ignorant. He's right. (laughs) Just listen to all the sermons we review here at Fighting for the Faith. Gospel ignorant. I mean... They don't even recognize the gospel if they trip over it. That's why we call it the gospel nugget and and calculate the speed at which it's flying through the sermon. It's just the truth. You will know them by their fruit. Now look at this in verse 17. It says, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Do you see what he's saying? This is what I want you to understand. I want to use the word ontos here, ontology. I want you to see what we're talking about here. That salvation is not merely the change of practice. It doesn't even begin there. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not New Year's resolutions. It's not this strong conviction to want to be a different person. None of that. Salvation is a supernatural work of God whereby someone really does become a new creature. Really. That's Amen. Yes. I'm sorry. It's not poetry. It's not poetry. Two of the greatest problems and three of the greatest problems in scriptures. One is trying to find a key to prophecy and overlooking the way Jesus and the apostles interpreted prophecy. Yep. The other one is taking realities for promises. <laughs> and then this one. This one. I want you to look at this. Salvation. Look, it's, it's not just, I made a decision. I chose the right way. I'm going in the right direction. No. Ontologically, the Christian is a new creature. Oh, amen. Absolutely amen to that. And who is it that's denying this truth? The emergent guys. Tony Jones flat out denies. We play the audio here. He flat out denies the Christians are ontologically different than anyone else. It's a complete denial of God's word. Uh, Paul Washer, yep, he's spot on here. That's not just spiritual poetry. That is a reality. It is true. I have become a new creature. So have you. So has anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Ezekiel puts it this way. My heart of stone that cannot respond to divine stimuli because it hates God That's is right. taken out and a heart of flesh which can respond to stimuli is put in its place. That's right. Been given a new heart, a recreation, a work of God. And what he's simply saying here is nature and will. The two Things are directly related. And like our dear friend Martin Luther, you can say that the will is in bondage to what? The nature. The will follows the nature. You make decisions. That's right. I just want to make a note of that. Uh, Paul Washer there uh, did quote uh, Martin Luther in the bondage of the will. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to point that out. According to what you are. 
Men are what what it means is that men are radically depraved and by nature they are enemies of God. Therefore their will is in bondage to what they are and their will does wicked things. People ask me, is there free will? I said, let's not even answer that question. Let's just go a little bit farther. The question is not, is there free will? The question is, there is there good will? You're free to will, but will only according to your nature. And your nature is evil, so what you're going to do is evil unless God comes in and gives you a new heart. Unless God regenerates you. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. Look what he's saying. Every good tree bears good fruit. Okay? We look at the physical world and we go, yeah. Why is it we go into the spiritual world and throw it right out the door? Well, you can't judge a book by its cover. Jesus didn't say that. As a matter of fact, he said just the opposite. He did. He said, well, in fact, you can judge a book by its cover. In the same way that you know a tree by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. He doesn't say he hopes it will bear good fruit. He doesn't say that sometimes it bears good fruit. He says a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. That's all there is to it. You go out, you look at an apple tree and all the apples are bad. You don't have to look any farther. You know there is something fundamentally wrong in the nature of that tree. What that tree is is wrong because its fruit's wrong. Same way you go out and I don't know exactly what the bark of an apple tree looks like. And I'm not really sure what the leaves of an apple tree look like. But if I look at a tree that has apples on it, what do I say? It's an apple tree. Well, Paul, are you really well versed in the type of leaf that an apple tree has? No, I don't even need to know that. What about apple tree bark? Can you identify apple tree bark? No, I don't. I don't have. I'm not very good at that. Well, how do you know it's an apple tree? Because it has apples. Now, unless somebody glued all those things on, it's an apple tree. Now, you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's funny. That's so absurd to say anything else. But then when you move into the spiritual realm, you throw it all away, don't you? Well, you can't say that. I remember one time, they actually had to call a doctor. I was preaching in a church in Kentucky, and I'm sitting there, and my wife's sitting there beside me. And we went to Sunday school prior to me going. I said, well, I've got time, Pastor. Let me just go to Sunday school. And so I'm sitting there, and this guy's directing the Sunday school, and he said, pray for so-and-so. And then uh, and then this new believer said, oh, I, I know that guy. Yeah, we need to pray for him. Man, he's lost. And then this other guy goes, you can't say that. And the young believer goes, what? He goes, you can, who are you to judge? You can't say he. And then everybody chimes in. Who are you to say he's lost? And he goes, the young believer goes, but... But the last time that the preacher went out to visit him, he almost whipped him and he kicked him off the porch and he said all kinds of cuss words to him and he said anybody comes to talk to him about the gospel and all these different things, he's going to beat him up. Yeah, but you can't say he's lost. <laughs> and I'm getting, I'm going. And my wife reached over and grabbed my leg that was going like 600 miles an hour. And I started sweating and all of a sudden I started seeing blotches and everything. They had to call... They, honestly, this is, not a, this is not an evangelist story. They had to call a doctor. They took me... Because I went nuts in there. I said, what's wrong with you people? Are you out of your minds? He beat the pastor up. He said, anyone who comes here talking about Jesus, I'm going to feed him to my pit bull. That doesn't look like fruit to me. And, and it's more than just a bad day. 
And he's done this for 20 years now. Yeah, but judge not. You know why people don't want you to judge other people? Because they don't want you to turn around judging them. Yeah, that's exactly right. They know if you do, they have no fruit. But Jesus, now, I want you to look at something. Verse 18. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Now, this is where we're going to get you. We're witnessing to somebody out on the street and they go, well, you know, we're just trying to do good and I'm just trying to do the best I can to go to heaven. And you go, look. I mean, I've heard this and it's true. Evangelism in America, they'll go, look, man, you you just can't produce good fruit to save yourself. You can't do works to save yourself because there's an internal problem. You know, I want to point something out here. The the gospel keeps being mentioned in passing and not very explicit here. That's another weakness in the sermon, I would say. I'd really, really like to hear him really make a main point about Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And he keeps mentioning it in passing. And this is a decent sermon. You can almost say a theological doctrinal sermon regarding monergism. And uh, and he brings the law in lawfully. What's a, what it's a little light on, <clears throat> more than a little light, is, is really clear exposition of the gospel. We continue. You have a sin nature. And, and, and with that sin nature, you can't do works that are going to please God. Now, is that true? Yes. But you've you got to put the other part in there. It not only says a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Look what else it says. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. How come no one ever teaches that? A good tree cannot. It's a spiritual impossibility that a good tree... It's a physical impossibility that a good tree will bear bad fruit. It's also a spiritual impossibility that a true Christian bear bad fruit. You say, now hold on, Brother Paul. You've already said that Christians sin and Christians can fall into sin. Yes, absolutely. But there is a difference, my friend, between a Christian struggling with sin, a Christian struggling with sin, repentant and broken with the reality of God working in his life, and God renews him, restores him, and puts him on the path. And you look at the full course of his life, not just a day, not just a month, but you look at the full course of his Christian life, and although you will see sin, you are going to see, by and large, a healthy tree with healthy fruit. The abundance of his life will be Christian fruit. You go out in the the finest orchard in the land, to the finest tree, and you'll find some bad apples on it. But when you look at it, you go, this is a good tree. I mean, because it has literally thousands of healthy fruit. In the same way, it's talking about a style of life. You see, this salvation thing is a work of God to demonstrate His glory. That's why He's not going to let it fail. He who begins a good work will finish it. We go to 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look at that. Look at that. Now let's let's just take this verse and compare it to this. I know Johnny was a fornicator and a drug addict and didn't go to church for 20 years, but I'm sure he went to heaven because I remember when he was nine, he asked Jesus to come into his heart. But this says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Do you see? Look what we've done. Johnny should have been warned. You know, I have been thinking about this. I have to interject here. Fruit is meant to be enjoyed and eaten by other people. The tree producing it doesn't get to enjoy its own fruit. Work with me here for a second. One of really, when you look at the 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 comparison of fruits, the person who is unrepentant is the person who lives to please and satisfy only themselves. They desire to consume the fruit of their own life, so to speak. And you see it in multiple different perversions. Adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, drug use, all these things, okay? And the, and the Christian, the, the fruit of repentance is the person who is doing the works that God has literally established before the foundations of the earth for them to do. They don't bear fruit for themselves. Their life is marked by fear, love, and trust in God and service to neighbor. That comes about only through the radical transformation, the ontological change that occurs when God repents you, when God gives you faith, when God is the one who gives you a heart of flesh uh, compared to to the heart of stone, when he raises you from the dead spiritually. So when we talk about fruit, I think it's, you know, if you're going to really look at what it is that we're talking about here, the fruit of an unrepentant sinner is is that there is no fruit for other people to enjoy. The fruit of the life of a Christian is they are producing fruit to be enjoyed and eaten by their neighbors, not themselves. I just point that up as a counterpoint because I, I think, again, I love Brother Washer. He, you know, he's preaching a good monergistic sermon, not hearing enough of the gospel. And, I, and my fear is, is that he's turning us back in on ourselves. And uh, again, when I look over the arc of my life, I can say, okay, yeah, I have fruit. And I still struggle with my sin. And the more I understand what God demands of me, boy, the less holy I really feel. Fruit and good works are for our neighbor to see. Just a theological distinction that we Lutherans like to bring up, and I think it's a valid one at this point. Johnny, you're not in danger of losing rewards. You're in danger of losing your soul in hell, Johnny. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now look how he the parenthesis that's placed here. He begins this dialogue with... You will know them by their fruits. He ends it with, you will know them by their fruits. You think Jesus is trying to tell us something? Not only that, but I see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit here. You just have to read a few texts to realize this book is amazing. Completely agree with him there. The more I study God's Word, the more I get blown away by the sheer depth and brilliance of this particular book. It is truly the Word of God. Oh. And how well it judges human nature. Look what it's saying. I'll tell you what it's saying. It, it's in, it seems to me to be anticipating something. 
anticipating even what men will do with Scripture. That men will somehow evolve into a form of Christianity where someone, because they say yes and jump through all the right evangelical hoops, they're affirmed that they're Christian even though they have no fruit whatsoever. And Jesus is going at the start, look, you'll know them by their fruits. And at the finish, look, you'll know them by their fruits. So then, listen to me, you will know them by their fruits. He's warning us. And we don't listen, do we? Because the only thing we can read in Matthew, in Matthew 7 is, do not judge lest you be judged. Isn't it amazing also that the Holy Spirit would put that text, judge not lest you be judged, in the same chapter with this where it says you will know them by their fruit. <laughs> Oh, dear friends, this is so serious. Let me give you just an example. Um, My little seven-year-old, Ian, when he was about, I guess, five and a half, I caught him crying on his bed. And I said, son, why are you crying? He said, Daddy, I don't want to die. I said, well, I said, death is always a possibility to all of us, but you're a healthy young man, you're young, we shouldn't give, our, give ourselves over to undue fear. No, no one knows what the future holds, and we need to trust in God. He said, oh, Daddy, I, I, want, I want God. I said, you do? Yes, I want God. I said, well, you've heard the gospel from your daddy many times. You know that you are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Daddy, I believe. I believe in Jesus. Now, what do I do with him? Do I sit there and go, Ian, you don't believe. You just don't believe. You're not fully understanding what's going on here. But do I say, oh, Ian, you believe and you're saved. Let's go tell your mother. That's what most people would do. But you see, a discerning heart would recognize, after talking to the boy, he was not weeping over sin. He was not weeping over an offense against God. He was weeping over self-preservation. He didn't want to die. And so what did I do? I said, Ian... I redirected him. I said, Ian, I want you to know something. If you truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who can take away your sins, any man who truly believes and trusts in Him, recognizes the depth, something of the depth of his sin, turns from it and believes in Jesus is saved. And if, you've, if you're doing that, if you're really doing that, and that's really happened to you, you're saved. But now let me tell you something. The evidence of your salvation is going to be God beginning to work in your life, directing you towards Scripture, uh, pointing out sin in your life, making you making you contrite and, and things such as that over disobedience to your parents. And we're just going to watch you, son. And we're going to use the Scripture and just help you as you go through these next months and years to discern whether you've truly come to know Him or not. You see, what would most parents do? They'd had him baptized the next week. I will not. I would not let my child go to ninety-eight percent of the Sunday schools, children's Sunday schools, children's churches, and vacation Bible schools in this country. I'll let you know that right now. And I may wouldn't let him go to yours. Why? Because I am sick and tired of watching some well-meaning lady stand up there and say, how many of you little children love Jesus and want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Because that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Countless thousands or millions of children are led into false decisions every year. You say you're loveless. No, I love them. That's why I'm going to fight this battle. I'm sick and tired of little children being misled by well-meaning people who don't read their Bibles. Because the fruit, the proof is in the pudding. It is statistically true that the great majority, if not almost all of them, go astray in their teenage years and depart from the things of God. You know, hmm, got to pause here for a second. What I'm not hearing very clearly at all, and I got to point this out, is the reiteration of what Christ has done for me. It's God's kindness, the gospel, that leads us to repentance. Repent and believe the good news. I really wish Paul would spend as much time really digging out from the scriptures what the good news is. We've heard it in passing. Just um, that, um, yeah, it needs a little bit more salt. Why? Because they never were his. Why? Because they never really heard the gospel. Why? Because it's not really taught in our churches. That's why. It's not every now. Just We're at the end of our time. And uh, take this up maybe again this evening. I want to get on to the heart of the gospel, but there's very important parts here. Please, I know... Look, I'm not a fool. At least not in a hole. I know what I must sound like. And I know what I must look like. But ask yourself, what do I have to gain for teaching like this? I'm eloquent at times. I could use my gift to make you love me. I could tell you all sorts of things about how God wants you to have your best life now. could have you eaten out of my hand. Then then again, if I did that, I wouldn't be a man of God. I'd be a false prophet and a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm not going to gain anything from you by telling you this. I'm telling you this because I fear God, because it's true, and because I love you. This is what's happening whether you want to recognize it or not. And again, it's not good enough just to have good theology in your study. You've got to bring it out on the floor. And when you do... It's going to raise a ruckus. It's going to raise a ruckus. And also, let me just say this. I admire, greatly admire, great expository preachers. I admired Dr. MacArthur and and, and others. Great expositors. And they don't do what I'm about to say, but I want to tell you something that I'm beginning to see. Men taking great glory in their exposition, but it's a Christless exposition. It's a perfect work of the text, but not much is made of Christ, number one. Number two, you can do line-by-line exegesis, have a perfect hermeneutic, and take the blade off of the whole thing in your preaching and turn it into nothing. Truth is meant to wound Reprove, rebuke. Not always. When I pastored, I didn't preach like this every day, but I did preach like this at times. Now, for you young men, let me tell you something. There are some men, probably in this audience, 
I know there's one sitting over here that's learned to be a surgeon in the Scriptures. And he can take the truths of the Scriptures as well as some of these other men and can cut a heart to health. He can take these Scriptures to cut the malignant parts out of men and bring healing. But a scalpel in the hands of a fool will kill people. He'll kill people. Critical spirit, a prophet messianic mentality, a wanting to be radical for radical sake, wanting to preach to people to show them that they're wrong without being up at night praying for their salvation. If you're a young man, you probably shouldn't preach like this, at least for a while. And until your knees are really ugly. Because when I speak like this, I'm talking to God's people, some of them. I'm talking to some people who are not God's people, but maybe will be God's people. It would be a terrible thing to be rude and hard to them for no reason and outside of the will of God. Because when He comes back, none of us want to be mistreating His servants. But these are truths that must be told. And sometimes they must be told in terrible ways. Offensive, terrible ways. But realize, we're living in a country where the gospel is all but lost. But I believe God is recovering it. I believe He is. Let's pray. All right, so there's our Paul Washer sermon. Overall, a very good sermon. What was missing, It was there was a little bit too little salt in the stew. And what I mean by that is he did literally a fantastic job of preaching no nonsense and speaking the truth to very real and egregious sins that are being committed in the name of God in the church today. He, he took the law out and just brilliantly, brilliantly used it correctly. What was really missing from this is the call individually. I mean, you can't just preach the law like this and wound people the way he did, literally with the skill that he did, and not offer them the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He did a fine job of calling the church to repentance. But for those who were listening, who were cut to the heart, whose sins were laid bare, what hope did they have? And I ask this question because at this, you know, in listening to the sermon, the hope that they have left at the end of this is that they have to live a life that shows a trajectory of character change? Yes, but that comes about. That fruit is produced by the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So Brother Washer had made some ex- exceptional points. And Brother Washer could have done a tidier job of really proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God. Because 
the God he proclaimed is rightfully wrathful and angry and will judge and punish sin. But that's only part of the equation because we also read in Numbers 14 what we read yesterday and what she mentioned in passing today about the steadfast love of the Lord and his mercy and his forgiveness, slow to anger. So overall, a good sermon compared to all the other stuff we get out there. I mean, completely different ball league. Um, this was the major leagues. Uh, those other guys, they're complete amateur hacks. That being said, really, I would have loved to have heard more of the cross, more of the forgiveness of sins and of the mercy of God. Because he brought people to penitence. He gave them contrition through his preaching of the law. We need the gospel now to comfort us and to offer us hope and salvation to a God that we have offended through our wickedness and our sinful behavior, through our rebellion against him, and our thoughts, words, and deeds, and in the preachers that we have set up in the church. Anyway, all right, we're at the end of our program. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or if you like, you can uh, make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. <clears throat> four six zero three eight if you would like to uh, email me you can you can do so by visiting uh, by emailing talkback at fightingforthefaith.com that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or uh, follow me on facebook or follow me on twitter my name is pirate christian until next time may the lord richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his atoning and propitiatory death for you on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs>